Chapter 2, Part 2 of The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea its stirring story of adventure, peril, and heroism. Volume 1 by Frederick Wimper Chapter 2 Men of Peace Part 2 The Challenger, in its cruise of over three years, naturally visited many oft-described ports and settlements, with which we shall have naught to do. After a visit to Kerkulian's land, the land of desolation, as Captain Cook called it, in the southern Indian Ocean, for the purpose of selecting a spot for the erection of an observatory, from whence the transit of Venus should be later observed. They proceeded to Heard Island, the position of which required determining with more accuracy. They anchored in the evening in a bay of this most gloomy and utterly desolate place, where they found half a dozen wretched sealers living in two miserable huts near the beach, which were sunk to the ground for warmth and protection against the fierce winds. Their work is to kill and boil down sea elephants. One of the men had been there for two years and was going to stay another. They are left on the island every year by the schooners, which go sealing or whaling elsewhere. Some forty men were on the island, unable to communicate with each other by land, as the interior is entirely covered with glacier, like Greenland. They have barrels of salt pork, beef, and a small store of coals and little else, and are wretchedly paid. Books, says Lord Campbell, tell us that these sea elephants grow to the length of twenty-four feet, but the sealers did not confirm this at all. One of us tried hard to make the Scotch mate say he had seen one eighteen feet long. But, well, he couldn't say sixteen feet. Well, he couldn't say fourteen feet. Well, yes, yes, something more like that. But thirteen feet would seem a fair average size. One of our fellows bought a clever little clay model of two men killing a sea elephant, giving for it, he being an extravagant man, one pound and a bottle of rum. This pound was instantly offered to the servants outside in exchange for another bottle. Crossing the Antarctic Circle, they were soon among the icebergs, keeping a sharp lookout for termination land, which has been marked on charts as a good stretch of coast seen by Wilkes of the American expedition thirty years before. To make a long story short, Captain Nares, after a careful search, undiscovered this discovery finding no traces of the land. It was probably a long stretch of ice, or possibly a mirage, which phenomenon has deceived many a sailor before. John Ross once thought that he had discovered some grand mountains in the Arctic regions, which he named after the then First Lord of the Admiralty, Croker. Next year, Parry sailed over the site of the supposed range, and the Croker Mountains became a standing joke against Ross. Icebergs of enormous size were encountered, several of three miles in length, and two hundred feet or more in height were seen one day, all close together. 
but bergs of this calibre were exceptional. They were, however, very often over half a mile in length. There are few people now alive, says the author we have recently quoted, who have seen such superb Antarctic iceberg scenery as we have. We are steaming towards the supposed position of land, only some thirty miles distance, over a glass-like sea unruffled by a breath of wind, past great masses of ice, grouped so close together in some cases as to form an unbroken wall of cliff several miles in length. Then as we pass within a few hundred yards, the chain breaks up into two or three separate bergs, and one sees, and beautifully from the masthead, the blue sea and distant horizon between perpendicular walls of glistening alabaster white, against which the long swell dashes, rearing up in great blue-green heaps, falling back in the torrent of rainbow-flashing spray, or goes roaring into the azure caverns, followed immediately by a thundering thud, as the compressed air within buffets it back again in a torrent of seething white foam. Neither words adequately describe the beauty of many of the icebergs seen. One had three high-arched caverns penetrating far to its interior, Another had a large tunnel through which they could see the horizon. The delicate colouring of these bergs is most lovely. Sweeps of azure blue and pale sea green with dazzling white. Glittering, sparkling crystal merging into depths of indigo blue. Stalactite icicles hanging from the walls and roofs of cavernous openings. The reader will imagine the beauty of the scene at sunrise and sunset when as many as eighty or ninety bergs were sometimes in sight. The sea was intensely green from the presence of minute algae, through bouts of which the vessel passed, while the sun, sinking in a golden blaze, tipped and lighted up the ice and snow, making them sparkle as with brightest gems. A large number of tabular icebergs with quantities of snow on their level tops were met, they amused themselves by firing a nine-pounder Armstrong at one, which brought the ice down with a rattling crash, the face of the berg cracking, splitting and splashing down with a roar, making the water below white with foam and powdered ice. These icebergs were all stratified, at more or less regular distances, with blue lines, which before they capsized or canted from displacement of their centres of gravity, were always horizontal. During a gale, the challenger came into collision with the berg and lost her jibboon, dolphin strike and other headgear. An iceberg in a fog or gale of wind is not a desirable obstruction to meet at sea. The observations made for deep sea temperatures gave some remarkable results. Here, among the icebergs, a band or stratum of water was found at a depth of 80 to 200 fathoms colder than the water either above or below it. Take one day as an example. On the 19th of February, the surface temperature of the sea water was 32 degrees. At 100 fathoms, it was 29.2 degrees, while at 300 fathoms, it had risen to 33 degrees. In the Atlantic, on the eastern side about the tropics, the bottom temperature was found to be very uniform at 35.2 degrees, while it might be boiling hot on the surface. Further south, on the west side of the Atlantic, below the equator, the bottom was found to be very nearly three degrees cooler. 
It is believed that the cold current enters the Atlantic from the Antarctic and does not rise to within 1,700 fathoms of the surface. These and many kindred points belong more properly to another section of this work to be hereafter discussed. The Challenger had crossed and sounded and dredged the broad Atlantic from Madeira to the West Indies, finding their deepest water off the Virgin Islands, thence to Halifax, Nova Scotia, we crossed it to the Azores, Canary and Cape de Verde Islands. We crossed it once more in a great zigzag from the African coast, through the equatorial regions to Bahia, Brazil, and thence, if the expression may be used, by a great angular sweep through the southern ocean to Tristan de Acuna, en route to the Cape, where they made an interesting discovery one that, unlike their other findings, was most interesting to the discovered also. It was that of two modern Robinson Crusoes, who had been living by themselves a couple of years on a desolate rocky island, the name of which, inaccessible, rightly describes its character and position in mid-ocean, Juan Fernandez, the locale of Defoe's immortal story, is nothing to it nowadays and is constantly visited. On arrival at the island of Tristan de Acuna, itself a miserable settlement of about a dozen cottages, the people, mostly from the Cape and St. Helena, some of them mulattoes, informed the officers of the challenger that two Germans, brothers, had some time before settled for the purpose of catching seals on a small island about thirty miles off, and the not having been over there or seen any signs of them for a long time, they feared that they had perished. It turned out afterwards that the Atristan the Acuna people had not taken any trouble in the matter, looking on them as interlopers on their fishing grounds. They had promised to send them some animals, a bull, cow and heifer, but although they had stock and fowls of all kinds, had left them to their fate. The thirst as his little-known Tristan de Acuna, of which Lord George Campbell finishes the following account, it is a circular-shaped island, some nine miles in diameter, a peak rising in the centre, 8,300 feet high, a fine sight, snow-covered as it is two-thirds of the way down. In the time of Napoleon, a guard of our marines was sent there from the Cape, but the connection between Naps being caged at St. Helena and a guard of marines occupying this island is not very obvious, is it? Anyway, that was the commencement of a settlement which has continued in varying numbers to this day. The marines having long been withdrawn, and now eighty-six people, men, women and children live here. A precipitous wall of cliff, rising abruptly from the sea, encircles the island, excepting where the settlement is. There the cliff recedes and leaves a long grass slope of considerable extent, covered with grey boulders. The cottages, in number about a dozen, look very Scotch from the ship, with their white walls, straw roofs and stone dikes around them. Sheep, cattle, pigs, geese, ducks and fowls they have in plenty, also potatoes and other vegetables, all of which they sell to whalers, who give them flour or money in exchange. The appearance of the place makes one shudder. It looks so foley as though it were always blowing there which indeed it is, heavy storms continually sweeping over, killing their cattle right and left, before they have time to drive them under shelter. 
They say that they have lost one hundred head of cattle lately by these storms, which kill the animals, particularly the calves, from sheer fatigue. The men of the place often go whaling or sealing cruises with the ships that touch there. The Challenger steams slowly over to Inaccessible Island during the night, and anchored next morning off its northern side, where rose a magnificent wall of black cliff, splashed green with moss and ferns, rising sheer 1,300 feet above the sea, between two headlands, a strip of stony beach with a small hut on it could be seen. This was the residence of our two Crusoes. Their story told when the first exuberance of joy at the prospect of being taken off the island had passed away was as follows. One of the brothers had been cast away on Tristan de Acuna some years before, in consequence of the burning of his ship. There, he and his companions of the crew had been kindly treated by the settlers, and told that at one of the neighbouring islands, 1,700 seals had been captured in one season. Telling this to a brother when he at last reached home in the fatherland, the two of them, fired with the ambition of acquiring money quickly, determined to exile themselves for a while to the islands. By taking passage on an outward-bound steamer from Southampton, and later transferring themselves to a whaler. They reached their destination in safety on the 27th of November, 1871. They had purchased an old whaleboat, mast, sails and oars complete, and landed with a fair supply of flour, biscuit, coffee, tea, sugar, salt and tobacco sufficient for present needs. They had blankets and some covers which were easily filled with birds' feathers. A German could hardly forget his national luxury, his feather bed. They had provided themselves with a wheelbarrow, sundry tools, pots and kettles, a short Enfield rifle and an old fowling piece and a very limited supply of powder, bullets and shot. They had also sensibly provided themselves with some seeds, so that all in all they started life on the island under favourable circumstances. The west side of the island on which they landed consisted of a beach some three miles in length with a bank of earth, covered with a strong, long tussock grass, rising to the cliff which it was just possible to scale. The walls of rock by which the island is bounded afforded few opportunities for reaching the comparatively level plateau at the top. Without the aid of the grass it was impossible, and in one place which had to be climbed constantly, it took them an hour and a half of hard labour, holding on with hands and feet and even teeth to reach the summit. Meantime they had found on the north side a suitable place for building their hut, near a waterfall that fell from the side of the mountain, and close to a wood in which they could obtain all the firewood they required. Their humble dwelling was partly constructed of spars from the vessel that had brought them to the island, and was thatched with grass. About this time, December, the seals were landing in the coast, it being the pupping season, and they killed nineteen. In hunting them, their whaleboat, which was too heavy for two men to handle, was seriously damaged in landing through the surf, but yet with constant bailing could be kept afloat. A little later they cut it in halves and constructed from the best parts a smaller boat, which was christened the Sea Cart. During the summer rains, their house became so leaky that they pulled it down and shifted their quarters to another spot. 
At the beginning of April, the tussock grass by which they had ascended the cliff caught fire, and their means of reaching game in the shape of wild pigs and goats was cut off. Winter, about our summer time as in Australia, etc., was approaching, and it became imperative to think of laying in provisions. By means of the sea cart, they went round to the west side and succeeded in killing two goats and a pig, the latter of which furnished a bucket of fat for frying potatoes. The wild boars there were found to be almost uneatable, but the sows were good eating. The goat's flesh was said to be very delicate. An English ship passed them far out at sea, and they lighted a fire to attract attention, but in vain, while the surf was running too high and their cart too shaky to attempt to reach it. Hitherto they had experienced no greater hardships than they had expected and were prepared for. But in June, midwinter, their boat was, during a storm, washed off the beach and broken up. This was to them a terrible disaster. Their old supplies were exhausted, and they were practically cut off from not merely the world in general, but even the rest of the island. They got weaker and weaker, and by August were little better than two skeletons. The sea was too tempestuous, and the distance too great for them to attempt to swim round, as they afterwards did to another part of the island. The succour was at hand. They were saved by the penguins, a very clumsy form of relief. The female birds came ashore in August to lay their eggs in the nests already prepared by their lords and masters, the male birds, who had landed some two or three weeks previously. Our good Germans had divided their last potato, were in a very weak and despondent condition, when the pleasant fact stared them in the face that they might now fatten on eggs ad libitum. Their new diet soon put fresh heart and courage in them, and when early in September a French bark sent a boat ashore, they determined still to remain on the island. They arranged with the captain for the sale of their sealskins, and bartered a quantity of eggs for some biscuit and a couple of pounds of tobacco. Late in October, a schooner from the Cape of Good Hope called at the island, and on leaving promised to return for them, as they had decided to quit the island, not having had any success in obtaining peltries or anything else that is valuable. But she did not reappear, and in November their supplies were again at starvation point. Selecting a calm day, two Crusoes determined to swim round the headland to the eastward, taking with them their rifles and blankets, and towing after them an empty oil barrel containing their cloves, powder, matches and kettle. This they repeated later on several occasions, and climbing the cliffs by the tussock grass, were able to kill or secure on the plateau a few of the wild pigs. Sometimes one of them only would mount, and after killing a pig would cut it up and lower the hams to his brother below. They caught three little sucking pigs and towed them alive through the waves, round the point of their landing place where they arrived half drowned. They were put in an enclosure and fed on green stuff and penguins' eggs, good feeding for a delicate little porker. Attempting on another occasion to tow a couple in the same way, the unfortunate pigs met a watery grave in the endeavour to weather the point, and one of the brothers barely escaped with some few injuries through a terrible surf which was beating on their part of the coast. Part of their time was passed in a cave during the cold weather. When the challenger arrived, their only rifle had burst in two places, and was of little use. 
while their musket was completely burst in all directions, or was being used as a blowpipe to freshen the fire when it got low. Their only knives had been made by themselves from an old saw. Their library consisted of eight books and an atlas, and these affording their only literary recreation for two years, they knew almost literally by heart. When they first landed they had a dog and two pups, which they doubtless hoped would prove something like companions. The dogs almost immediately left, and made for the penguin rookeries, where they killed and worried the birds by hundreds. One of them became mad, and the brothers thought it best to shoot the three of them. Captain Nares gave the two Crusoes a passage to the Cape, where one of them obtained a good situation. The other returned to Germany, doubtless thinking that about a couple of dozen seal-skins, all they obtained, was hardly enough to reward them for their two years' dreary sojourn on inaccessible island. End of chapter 2 Part 2